You're listening to the Liberty Grace Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit libertygrace.ca. I don't have to tell you that we live in very interesting times these days. There was a time a few years ago, I remember thinking, life is pretty good. Do you remember those days? I remember actually the particular year, and I thought, okay, I can't think of any major wars going on right now. The economy's humming, interest rates are low. You can buy almost anything and finance it and not have to worry about being broke. Houses were expensive. You know, not everything is perfect, but uh, you know, you could go online and you could order almost anything and get it shipped for free next day. It was amazing. Now I know I'm privileged. I know that life isn't good for everyone. It wasn't good for everyone back then, but I certainly had the feeling that life is pretty good. That uh, and it seemed like things were spreading. It seemed like uh, around the world that corrupt governments were falling, and uh, it seemed like better governments—not perfect governments, but perfect or better governments were taking over. It really felt like things were moving in the right direction. Well, what happened? (laughs) I don't feel like that anymore. Uh, We live in a time of what uh, has been called polycrisis. Poly means many, uh, and that means we live in a time not just of many crises, but uh, the crises sort of interacting with each other and overlapping with each other. So serious, related, overlapping crises all of which are severe and uh, many, well, we can't really solve any of them right now. We have war, we have inflation, we have political upheaval and more. I mean, just watch the news yesterday and the smartest intelligence officer can't really tell you what's going on. They can't explain what's going on. If you say to somebody, what's gonna happen in Russia? You know, this nuclear power, uh, who's in charge, you know, what, what's going to be like a week from now or a year from now. Uh, you could talk, everyone has ideas, but who knows, really. And it's one thing to read in the newspaper, but it is not just out there. It is affecting all of us. Uh, the past few years, uh, I don't know, if somebody brings up COVID to me now, it's almost like it's a repressed part of my mind. And uh, somebody's like, you remember the pandemic? And I'm like, no, like, did that happen? I thought I dreamt like there were three really weird years, right? And uh, we didn't go to church. We logged on Zoom and, you know, like weird stuff. Like we stopped going to restaurants. Everybody stayed in their condos. If somebody said, did that actually happen? I'm like, no, that was like a really bad dream. It seemed real, but that didn't happen at all. You know, we're just beginning to recover from that. And if you're like me, you're kind of surprised. I don't know, like, I don't want to psychologize things, but it just feels like, did that actually happen? I don't know if you feel like that. I just kind of feel like, did that actually happen? Uh, But on top of that, we've got uh, all the baggage that we still carry from that, as well as personal crises that you and I might have been going through. I know that these are difficult times. A lot of us are going through difficult things. Uh, On top of that, you've just got... uh, a crazy world that we live in with just like going to the grocery store is, uh, can be a traumatic event. I, I don't want to exaggerate. We're still very blessed here, but you go to the grocery store and you're like, can I afford that? You know, can I really afford that stuff I used to buy? I didn't have to think about, but can I actually do that? My mortgage is coming up for renewal. Now, praise God, I have a mortgage. Mine isn't. I've got another year left, but um, I, I, I'm already thinking like a year from now, what are inter- 
We're thinking about how this affects us on a regular basis. Uh, the social upheaval. Uh, I heard a historian speak recently about the uh, Industrial Revolution in England, which ultimately resulted in major change, including economic growth. But he said in the short term, it led to huge disruption, uh, family breakup, and people having to rejig their careers, and all sorts of pollution, and uh, with all the positive, there were also a lot of negative things. And I was thinking about our day to day. We're going through a massive change. It's gonna lead probably to economic growth, but there's gonna be a lot of displacement. A lot of us are gonna be like, what do I do with my job that I thought was secure? And these are not easy days for faith either. Uh, Wall Street Journal did a survey and they found that our values are changing. If you ask people, are you more confident that your grandchildren are gonna live in a better world than we live in? Now a lot of people are saying, no, I don't think so. Patriotism, this is in the States, patriotism and community values are on their way down. And when it comes to faith, the number of people who believe that religion is important has gone from 62% to 39%. Uh, that's a massive drop, that's in the States. We're more secular than they are. The headline of the uh, our study was, uh, or the, in the Wall Street Journal was this, America pulls back from the values that wants to find it. So people are losing faith in faith. Life is not getting better. And I'm not even gonna talk about like the personal things that you and I are going through that nobody else might know about. How do you hold on to hope in the age of polycrisis? Well, today we're uh, going through the Bible. For those of you that don't know this year, we're doing this audacious thing. Uh, last year I said to Shar, like, I have this crazy idea, what do you think? She's used, she's been married to me a long time. Uh, when I say I got a crazy idea, she's just like, I've heard them all, like, what is it? And what if we went through the Bible, like preach through the Bible from beginning to end uh, this year? And she thought about, she said, you've had crazier ideas, so uh, we're doing this. We began in Genesis, we're going all the way to Reve Revelation, and we're kind of in the middle. We're getting, of course, we're in June, so we're right at the midpoint almost. We're getting there. This month we'll hit the midpoint. Today we're in the story of a man named Elisha. Not Elijah, but his successor, Elisha. Uh, the, basically the prophet, God was good enough to give prophets to Israel, and here's Elisha, the prophet. Now, what's interesting about Elisha, if you know Elijah, if you were here last week, Elijah was a kind of a, a brash dude. He did amazing things, fearless, and then fell apart. Elisha comes and succeeds him. He's got double whatever Elijah did. So he's got more power. He's performed miracles. This is 3,000 years ago. He brought a child back to life. He multiplied a widow's jar of oil. Wouldn't that be handy? Like a, a, jottle, a bottle of oil that never ran out. Like you kept using it, and it would be like it was always full. Uh, he healed Naaman, a foreigner with, from leprosy. He made an axe float on water. It's like, I got this from Stevenson's rental. Like I gotta return this. And Elisha's like, don't worry. Like, and it floats and it's like, take it back. You don't lose your deposit, that kind of thing. Now we tend to think a prophet is someone who predicts the future, but just a reminder, a prophet is somebody who can do that, but primarily a prophet is somebody who calls peop God's people to God. So a prophet is really somebody who says, don't forget what the Bible says. Don't forget that God has called you to follow him. You guys are not doing that. Let me remind you of what's at stake. They called 
God's people back to the way that God called them to live. So in other words, these prophets are really gifts from God. God sent them because God loves his people. God cares about his people. And so he's like, let me send you prophets. And instead of just writing you off, you guys are messing up. Instead of writing you off, let me send you prophets to draw you back to me. Now, Elisha did not live at an easy time. Uh, two things are going on. Uh, if I could show you First and Second Kings, by the way, I'm kind of frustrated because we're, even though it seems like we're going through the Bible slowly, there's so much we're skipping over. I really wish we could slow down because like, we're looking at a passage from First Kings and Second Kings. We're skipping over so much. We're skipping over Jonah uh, last week. Like, there's so much. But this is a period of decline. So Israel's on a toboggan ride down. Like, thing, everything's going down. By the end of 2 Kings, it's going to be way down. Elisha was called to minister then. How would you like to be a prophet in the middle of, like, Israel going to, to pot, basically? Like, how would you like to Elisha's job description? The other thing we see in this passage is it begins with, in verse 8, the king of Syria warring against Israel. And so Elisha lives in a period where Israel is not being good and enemies are invading Israel. Who is Syria? It's interesting, Syria is, of course, familiar to us. Uh, of course, uh, tracing Syria back then, 3,000 years ago to Syria today is tricky, but uh, it was a formidable power. In verse 15, we read later on that Elisha's servant is terrified by the portion of the army that surrounds the city. So the Syrians were always invading Israel. It was almost like this, uh, they were doing these incursions, right? These raids. They would come, they would kill, they would burn villages, they would enslave, they would carry away the women and children. It was not a fun thing to experience. Israel's going downhill and they're being invaded. It was a time of polycrisis. What do we learn from this story? Well, there's three things that I want to highlight from this story. The first thing is this, and this is kind of looking back on everything we've looked at so far. Here's the first thing we notice in this story. I think it's true of the story up to now. God's people are often in trouble. Okay, God's people are often in trouble. It's beginning to be a theme, isn't it? Israel's endangered. We're, and it's almost like this seems familiar. Like, we're halfway through this year-long series in the Bible, have you noticed how much of the time God's people are in trouble? I hope you've noticed in this story so far, there's hardly a time when God's people aren't in trouble. So go to Genesis 3, where everything began, all the problems began. Adam and Eve sin, and they're what? They're kicked out of the garden. Where do we live right now? We live outside of the garden. We do not live in Edenic conditions. We do not live in the Garden of Eden. We live in a world of misery and sin and brokenness. Well, there's a reason why it begins in Genesis 3. But moving on, God calls a nation to himself. He calls Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to bless the world through you. Well, in Genesis 18, this couple is childless and old. Any hope of a natural baby coming is impossible. They are in trouble. They're in trouble. They don't know what to do. At the end of Genesis, uh, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, are in captivity uh, in Egypt. Uh, they're in the beginning of a captivity in Egypt. But they're, you know, experiencing famine. They're away from home for hundreds of years. 
in the beginning of Exodus. They're in captivity in Egypt. Well, then they leave. Exodus to Deuteronomy, they're refugees in a desert. How would you like to be a refugee? How would you like to live in a desert? How would you like a 40-year camping trip? Anyone? Like, it is not good. How would you like a severely restricted diet? How would you like, like quail and manna for 40 years? And there's like, I think we'll hit water tomorrow if we're lucky, like let's, let's hope for it because we're thirsty. In Judges, they're threatened by Canaanites. In First uh, and Second, well in First in Kings, the kingdom divides. With only one brief interlude, basically, the story of God's people has been one problem after another. And now things are going downhill. Pretty soon, Israel's going to be, spoiler alert, okay, plug your ears if you don't want to know this. Like, I'm just, if you want to watch the movie first, I don't want to ruin it for you. Uh, soon, Israel's going to be exiled. After that, Judah's going to be exiled. We're in the Old Testament for another dozen weeks or so. The rest of the dozen weeks that are coming before we get the New Testament, most of it's bad. God's people will continue to be in trouble. By the time Jesus arrives, God's people, Israel, through whom he's going to bless this world, is a small outpost in a vast Roman empire. Hardly matters at all. There's hardly a time that Israel isn't in crisis. You're saying, well, then Jesus came and changed everything. Okay, like he, after a few years of ministry, had a handful of uh, followers. Uh, he handpicked these 12. All but one of them was killed for their faith. You know, the, the kingdom expanded and it was persecuted for years. There's hardly a time that God's people aren't in trouble. And if you're saying, okay, that's God's people in general. What about the individuals too? If you look at the individuals in scripture, here's what you see. Most of them seem to be in trouble most of the time. They're falsely accused. They're imprisoned. They're made slaves. They're under threat from foreign enemies. They're the victim of evil plots against them. Over and over again, God's people find themselves in trouble. And you open your Bible to this passage here, and you see that Israel's being raided by Syria once again. And you're just like, oh, another day in the life of God's people. By the way, would anybody like to give their life to Christ today? Today is a good day to become a Christian and sign up for a life of trouble as well. That's what you're signing up for, kind of. At the end of the book of Hebrews, here's what we read about God's people. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They, were, they went about with skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Okay, you're saying, this is depressing. What does the New Testament say about this? That's Hebrews reflecting on the Old Testament saints. Does the New Testament give us any better news? Well, here's the news the New Testament gives us. 1 Peter 4.12. Hear this. This is a word to us today. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes again to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you might also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What is this saying? We should not be surprised by suffering. Um, Ajith Fernando in Sri Lanka came to speak to North Americans and he said, okay, North Americans, you are very good at a lot of things. 
In Sri Lanka, we have lots to learn from you. You guys are amazing. Uh, you guys have vision. You guys have all kinds of plans. We have so much to learn from you. And here's what he said to us, though. He says, we have lots to learn from you, and here's what you can learn from us in Sri Lanka. We know and expect suffering. We understand that suffering is part of the Christian life. We understand that when you sign up to serve God, you sign up to suffer. I've always thought of that since then. Uh, there is a day that we will be free from suffering. That day has not come yet. In fact, the Bible says that the reason why all these people, Hebrews says the reason why all these people were willing to suffer is they had actually pinned their hopes on a different world and it just got them through this world of suffering. They're like, we know it's hard. We expected this. There's a better day coming. We don't have to worry. All these sufferings are actually being used by God to make us better. So who cares about the suffering? We're all in. But they weren't surprised by suffering. Here's what the Bible teaches us. Don't be surprised by suffering. It has been the normal state of Christians throughout history. Now, I don't want to depress you. Like, if you had an idea that the Christian life was just one of victory and joy and no troubles at all, I actually think life would be more miserable for you because you'd be looking at your life saying, what's wrong? Like, why am I going through this hard thing? I expected it to be easy. Actually, what the Bible's doing here is giving us joy because when we're suffering, we go, of course. Like, this is what the Bible said would happen. We're not surprised. And a better day is coming. But I should not be surprised to find it's hard right now. God's people often find themselves in trouble. But here's what else we see in this passage. Secondly, here's what else this passage tells us. But God is kind. But God is kind. Aren't you glad for this? In this world of suffering, God is kind. So question for you, what did Israel deserve from God at this time? Pretty well nothing. How good was Israel at this point? Well, I've already said, they were on a downward path. They were worshiping idols. They were neglecting God. Uh, every king they had was evil. In Judah, they had some good kings. In Israel, they had bad... It's easy. I like Israel because it's like, how many bad kings did Israel have? None. Like, okay, which kings in Israel were good? If you ever play, like, Harold's good at Bible trivia pursuit, how many kings in Israel were good? Easy. None. Judah's harder, right? They had some good ones. Zero. How much grace did... Israel deserve none, absolutely none. In fact, in a few chapters, in chapter 17, I had to cut this out. It was almost hard to pick up. 17 is so scathing, and it goes on so long listing how bad Israel was that I had a hard time compressing it to give you a picture of how bad it is. But here's a sample, a compressed sample of what chapter 17 says about Israel. They despised God's statutes and his covenant. What did they think of God's covenant? They despised it. Uh, and they went after false idols and became false. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they don't be like them. They abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. They made themselves images. They burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. If you read chapter 17, you don't have to guess what the author thinks of Israel at that point. It is not subtle. It's like, what redeeming qualities did Israel have? None. Like, okay, they must have something good going for them. In chapter 17, he's like, they've got nothing going for them. God just wants them out of his sight. They are so bad. 
which is why it's extra surprising in this chapter that God comes to Israel's aid. You remember uh, the king is uh, of Syria's uh, planning to invade. He calls his counselors and says, okay, guys, time for a battle plan. It's time to evade, invade Israel again. But before they could execute any of the plans, Elisha goes to the king of Israel and says, you're never gonna believe what the king of Syria is planning. They're gonna come here. This is gonna be their battle tactic. Uh, you can prepare, like you can, you can, when they come for the surprise attack, you'll be ready, no problem at all. Imagine every time Putin made plans that before Putin could even, before the meeting was over, Zelensky knows about it. Like before the meeting is over and the king of Syria is like, who's telling him? We got a mole here. And they go, we don't have a mole, it's Elisha's the mole. God tells Elisha, the words you speak in your bedroom, he tells Elisha, Elisha tells the king, the king prepares, God is so kind to his people. Why was God doing this? When they were going downhill, and here's the reason why, it is God's nature to be kind to his people. Not because they deserve it, it wouldn't be grace if we deserved it. God is gracious to his people because it's in God's nature to be kind and gracious to his sinful people. Not because they are good, but because he is gracious. Imagine if God treated us like we deserved. None of us would be enjoying life very much. Imagine if God paid us back for the sins that we had committed. God knows all of them. Imagine if God was not a gracious God. He would be just in treating us with severity, all of us. We've all sinned. Uh, we all deserve God's judgment. But here's the reality about God, that God is so committed to his people that he just loves to come to the aid of his people. Now, I don't know about you, there's times where I think there's no way that God, if, I mean, God knows everything that I've done. He knows every evil thought I've had. He's, he knows everything. He knows the worst about me. Uh, he's seen, he's missed nothing. This morning I asked, I asked my wife a dangerous question. I said, um, I was asked by somebody, you know, what are your, how do you struggle with sin? Like, what are your perpetual sin issues? And so I said to my wife, like, what do you think my sin that you see in my life is? That's a scary thing to ask your wife. But you know, my wife, what I discovered as she related to me uh, in her very accurate but also very gentle way is that she has a limited knowledge of my sinfulness. God doesn't. My wife doesn't even see the full extent of my sinfulness. God does. How amazing is it that despite my sins, despite my lack of deserving God's grace, that God loves to come to my aid. And friends, for you, if you came in here today carrying a weight of sin and you you. You come to Jesus and you say, let me give you all the reasons why I don't deserve your grace. Jesus looks to you and says, I know you don't deserve it and I delight in giving it to you anyway. You come and you say, I don't deserve. Like, if you ever feel unworthy coming to the communion table, Lord, I know I believe, but I just feel so unworthy. I'm so full of sin. And Jesus is like, I know. That's why there is communion. The whole reason I died for you is out of sheer, my sheer grace, I've taken all your sins. I'm not surprised by any of them. I delight in being kind to you despite your sin. We sang the song, his mercy is more. 
God doesn't do it because he is reluctant to do it. God loves to be gracious to his people. He loves to show kindness to sinners. We can come to Jesus knowing that he's inclined to come to our aid. He will not turn you away. He loves to help his people. And he does this in surprising ways. I don't think we know the extent to which God has shown his kindness to us, even though we don't deserve it. Uh, you know, I, I love this story because uh, Israel didn't deserve it. And God's like, let me tell you how to prepare for the attack. What a picture of God's grace to us, right? That God is, we don't deserve it. God's like, let me come to your aid. Again, let me give you an example. Still a long time ago, but I just really like this example. I think it's a modern example, uh, similar to what happened in this passage. In 19, the 1970s, it was very difficult to be a Christian in China. And so you had to worship, many of them worshiped in house churches. And they regularly had to change locations because of crackdowns. When caught, the leaders would be arrested and sent to labor camps. And so to be a pastor in China of a house church in that day was a very dangerous thing. You could end up basically the rest of your life imprisoned. One meeting in a house church, there was an extraordinary sense of the presence of God. And they were worshiping, they were singing, they prayed. And it was just like that day, there was an, an unusual sense of the Holy Spirit and the love of Jesus in the room. And everyone was just like, we didn't plan that. Like, we can't take credit for that. Nobody expected that. There was just a powerful sense of God's presence among them. And at the end of the meeting, uh, everyone was so moved. At the end of the meeting, five men stood up and they were newcomers to the meeting. And they revealed themselves as undercover government agents sent there to arrest the leaders that day. But that day, uh, they experienced God's power and they had a change of heart and trusted Christ instead. Friends, God loves to thwart the plans of the enemies of God's people and show his grace to people who don't deserve it. The bad news is we live in a difficult world. We're gonna go through a lot of trouble, but God delights in coming to our aid. God loves to be gracious to his people. And the good news is your sins don't disqualify you from that aid. Uh, God is persistent. Now I'm not saying please turn away, like the prophet Elisha would say, turn away from your sins. Don't persist in them, it's a dangerous thing to do. But I'm here to tell you God loves to be gracious to his wayward people. God will welcome us back. God is not hesitant to help us when we turn to him, even though we don't deserve it. And so today, experience God's goodness. He is ready to help you. Uh, he, he will never turn you away when you come to him. Your sins are never too much that God looks at you and says too much. You can come today and God will help you. He will receive you. He has never turned anyone away who's come to him. God's people are often in trouble, but God is kind and gracious to his people. And there's one more thing we see in this passage. Um, God's people are in trouble. God is very kind when they're in trouble. But the third thing we see in this passage is God has all the resources that we need. God has all the resources that we need. Okay, put yourself in the place of the king of Syria. Okay, everyone, like this time uh, we're getting rid of five of you because I think one of you might be moles. Come in here, this time we're whispering, like just in case somebody's listening. Still Elisha finds out and tells. So can you imagine how mad how ticked off the king of Syria was? I would be so ticked. What is he going to do? Well, the problem is who? Elisha, right? Simple. All you've got to do is eliminate Elisha. I've got a big army. I can eliminate one man. 
So no problem at all. The king knew what to do. He found out where Elisha was. He surrounds the city and says, Elisha's dead. Like this day tomorrow, Elisha's a dead man. Problem solved, I can attack Israel. Done. Verse 14, we read. So we sent their horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. So again, picture waking up. We read that Elisha's servant wakes up. He looks out and there is like a massive army with, and chariots by then, like back then, were like tanks now, right? They were, uh, they were just like, this is scary. And Elisha, Elisha's servant freaks out. Who wouldn't? They're after one man, this massive army. Like there is no chance that Elisha is going to get out of here. But Elisha says this to the servant, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I can picture Elisha's servant saying, like doing a count, like looking around, like they've got chariots and an army and he's looking around doing like fingers and toes kind of thing. Like, I don't think you're right. Like there's not more of us than out there. And then Elisha prays and says, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he might see. By the way, what a powerful prayer. Oh Lord, open his eyes that he might see. The Lord opens the servant's eyes and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Man, if you could see, uh, if God could open your eyes to the spiritual realities around here, if you could see God's love for you, if you could see every time you pray, if you could see that God is actually, the very God who's running this universe is actually paying particular attention to you and what you're concerned about. If you could see the angelic powers that he's unleashed on your behalf. If you could see, I love Ephesians that says, I pray that you would comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. And you're like, Paul, that doesn't make any sense. How can we comprehend the incomprehensible? If you could see the spiritual realities that God has deployed on your behalf. But Elisha was saved. Elisha was delivered. Friends, what was true of Elisha is true of you. If your eyes could be open to see the immensity of God's love for you, the power that God has. If you could see the relative weakness of Satan, like he has not got anything on you. If you could just see what God has prepared on behalf of his people. And sure enough, uh, God saved Elisha. Um, I, we're going to look at the story later during communion a little bit, but how, what a cool ending to the story. We'll get to that in a little bit. But here's the lesson I want you to hear today. I began by saying life is hard. God's people are always in trouble. And you and I were probably going like, thanks for the message, Cheryl. I wish I hadn't come out today. But then we learned of the kindness of God, that despite all that we go through in this life, God is favorably inclined to you. If, you're, if, you, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to know G Jesus welcomes you with open arms to come to him today. With no reservations, he welcomes you to come with your baggage, with your junk, with your doubts. He invites you to come. Christian, you feel like you've let God down he invites you to come today. He welcomes you. He knows everything. And he says, come. I, I, I will not hesitate. I will not even think about it for a minute. You're welcome. Come. And he has all the resources we need to get through this difficult life. Unseen resources. If we only had eyes to see. In fact, we can pray, Lord, open our eyes to see your love for us. Open your eyes. Open our eyes to see your presence, your care, your power. If only we could see. God answered Elisha's prayer 
and open the eyes of his servant. God is ready and willing to open our eyes as well to see the resources that he has prepared for us. What a hard life. What an amazing God who gives us everything that we need. God's people are often in trouble, but God is kind and has all the resources that we need. Lord, my prayer is this, would you open our eyes? I thank you that despite our sin, you are so gracious. Lord, you never turn any of us away. You welcome us to come. You know the kind of week that some of us have had this week. And I guess we're not surprised. Life is hard. It's full of suffering. I pray right now in your kindness that you would come meet our need. Lord, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us eyes to see the immensity of your love and your care for us? May we hope in you and then fear nothing else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.